Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. I actually, all during worship, um, I, I felt the Lord keep reverberating this thing in me that today is a day of repentance. It's a day of repentance, and I actually don't want to go into my message yet because I, I feel like the Lord is on this. And I leaned over to Romy, and I said, I keep hearing day of repentance. And she's like, that's what I feel like I'm getting ready to talk about. And as soon as I tell her that, Emily starts prophetically singing that whatever is, uh, oh, I forgot the word now. What were you saying? Binding, bi- not binding. Yeah, laying it on the altar, but whatever is... Hindering, that's the word. Whatever is hindering, lay it on the altar. Whatever. By the way, half the song that we sang came out of a prophetic house worship moment. My heart is beating out of my chest. That just came out of a Sunday night impromptu worship session that we had, and it became a whole song. And then this morning, I'm, I'm really feeling today is a day of repentance, and she starts singing prophetically about repentance. I'm like, all right, I get it, you know, and now there's a flood coming. So I, I love it. You know, how do you interpret the flood? Well, if you interpret the flood, the flood in Noah's time wasn't just a punishment of sin. It was a cleansing of the earth. So the flood now, when we talk about floods, it's not that people die in floods. It's that sin dies in the flood. So the flood now is meant to cleanse. It's meant to keep the things that hinder us from hindering us anymore and laying it on the altar. And so I just want to respond to that. And uh, if you've got something, I'd ask you to search your hearts. I really would. This is a regular thing for us is repentance. Now, when I say it's a day of repentance, it's not a day of judgment and repentance. Repentance is a good thing. It means that God's saying, hey, today is a great day to repent. It's not you better or else. It's, hey, today is a great day. We live in an era of grace and God's favor. It's a great day to repent. Why would you want to have something that hinders you? If you feel like a disconnection from God, if you're in worship and you see everybody else is into it and you're not feeling it, that's a hindrance. And that's what God wants to let us to let go of. But sometimes the key to engaging in worship and really feeling the presence of God and experiencing His presence is not because the song is the one you like. It's because you have repented of the things that are hindering you from Him. God doesn't hide His face from us. It's sin that easily entangles. That's the verse that she was actually prophesying. And God wants us to lay it down. You know, often, like if I'm sitting there and I'm preaching, I actually forget what I'm preaching until I turn on my iPad when I stand up here. I know that sounds tragic. But I'm literally like, oh yeah, how to read your Bible. That's what we're doing today. It's because I get all my prep done usually early. And so what I'm sitting there in before I get up here, anytime I preach or even if I just meet with somebody or pray, I'm asking three things. It's really simple. Lord, is there anybody I need to forgive? Two, is there any lie that I have believed? Because the enemy wants to lie to you, and the only power the enemy has to you is the degree to which you have believed his lies. If you don't believe him, he's got no power. If you believe him, his lie becomes your truth, and you've now empowered the lie and the liar to have control over you. And the third thing is, Lord, is there anything that I need to repent of? Is there anything, any sin that I need to confess? You ever done a sin and you didn't even realize it? 
I mean, usually you do, but sometimes you're like, there's no obvious sin that I need to confess right now, Lord, but is there something that maybe I did? You know, you talk about Job. Job would offer sacrifices for his kids just in case they sinned. That's what I'm talking about. It's like, is there anything I don't know about? Because I want to make sure that what comes out of here is not coming out of here, but it's coming out. Boy, if it came out of here, you'd all be in trouble. Um, but it comes out of the streams of living water flowing from within me because that's God's spirit. And I don't want them to be my words. I want them to be his words. And so that's what I do. It's I just really easy. It's not like I have to go on a trip somewhere and seclude myself for a month. It's a constant, Lord, anything I need to confess, anything I need to repent of, anybody I need to forgive. But I feel like the repentance thing, God is on this right now. So I'm going to ask you, Close your eyes, not because it's holy, not because it's more special, but just because sometimes it helps us to get the distractions away. And I want you to just ask the Lord, Lord, is there anything that I need to repent of? No one's going to give you a microphone. You don't have to come to the front. It's just right where you are. Is there anything I need to repent of? Is there any sin that I need to acknowledge and confess to you? Because today is a day of repentance. And with repentance comes forgiveness. It comes refreshing. That stream of living water is for you too. Not just for everybody else. And so whatever he brings up to your own memory... Don't beat yourself up over it. God doesn't reveal sin so that he can bring shame. That's the enemy hijacking this process and trying to put his spin on it. Don't allow that to happen. Put it on the altar. Jesus already bore that sin on his body. Forgiveness is already made available to you. You just got to appropriate it by confessing and repenting. So Lord, I repent of that thing. Thank you for forgiving me. You know that word about anxiety. I think the most common cause of anxiety is unforgiveness and an unrepentant heart. So get rid of the things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance, the race marked out for you. So perseverance comes when we learn to get rid of our sin. Thank you, Jesus. And then just receive. Receive his forgiveness. Receive the love. The death of fear is not courage. The death of fear is love. In Jesus' name, amen. I found myself last night. I, uh, I was going through this process last night as Romy was writing her paper till 2 a.m. And I'm sitting there on the couch and I felt compelled to watch two particular preachers who have 
done some bad things. And one of them, after they had done some bad things, were right up in their pulpit the next Sunday. And I'm like, God, how does this person stand before your people having done what he did? And he said, I want you to watch it. And there was somebody else who, not the same thing, but has done some not great things. And he said, I want you to watch these two preachers, not as a critic, but I want you to watch them until you feel my love for them. So three hours later, (laughs) but God, you know what they did. Keep going. And as I'm sitting there, I realize I will never feel your love for them until I repent of my attitude towards them. Why do I feel a way about them that you don't? So God, I need to lay this down because I can't do this in the flesh. And he's like, I think you're starting to understand now, aren't you? And I began to watch and I started to feel, oh God, you love them. Not you love them in spite of, but you love them. Now I love them. I'm broken, and there's things that need to change and need to be corrected, but God, if my heart towards them is not your heart towards them, one of us is wrong. It's probably not you. You know, the word repentance, I know we were taught it's a military thing, it's like an about face, it's turned the other direction, and that's true. But a Another, not another, but in in addition to that, repenting means to change the way you think. So when the Bible talks about being renewed in your mind, that's speaking of repentance. That repentance only really happens when you change the way you think about something, including yourself and including the other people. Amen? Anybody receive that? Uh, Well, let's talk about how to read the Bible, shall we? (laughs) Um. So last week we began this series on how to read the Bible. Honestly, I'm not great at catchy titles um, or I can spend all my life. I know a lot of preachers that are really great communicators and they're like, I spend all my time on making up titles and transitions between points. And I was like, that's great. I'm just how to read the Bible. That's what I'm talking about. So that's my catchy title is how to read the Bible. Last week we talked about really two keys uh, to being a disciple, the key tools that God gives us. Um, for, for being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is the Holy Spirit within us, and it's our Bible. It's the Word of God. These two things are not mutually exclusive. You don't get to pick between them. I know some people that are just Spirit-led, and they're like, God's told me to, God's told me to, God's told me to, and I'm like, well, the Bible tells us to. Yeah, but God told me to, and I'm like, well, unless you're writing a new Bible, God doesn't tell us something that is not also confirmed in His Word. In fact, how do we know if what we're hearing is God or something else? We know if it's God, if it's in the Word, if it's confirmed with the Word, okay? So He gives us both of those things, and we need to be prolific in both. We want to develop a prolific, prophetic people, and we want to develop people of the Word. I want to be that for myself. The role of the Holy Spirit, one of the roles, is to guide us into all truth. That means that when we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit is helping us to understand and apply what it is that we're actually reading. 
So we talked about how the Holy Spirit illuminates and guides us, and preaching is great, and podcasts are great, but it can't replace our own necessity to know the Bible for ourselves. But for most, reading the Bible can be a little bit intimidating. You do great. You're like Genesis, Exodus, and then somewhere you hit this book called Leviticus, and you're like, oof, can we throw some Psalms in there? Some... I remember Proverbs. You know the old Proverbs? There's 31 Proverbs, 31 chapters, in Pro- uh, 31 days in the week. Read a proverb every day. And then you get into Proverbs, and you're like, this thing doesn't read like a story. It's like, they're like tweets. That's what Proverbs is like. It's like, <laughs> bang, 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 bang. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I just read one, and it unlocked all this, and I can't even read a whole chapter of Proverbs in a day. It gets to be challenging. And so I want to give you some things, I think some guidelines that will really help you study the word, get into the word. I've been encouraged to hear from some of you that even just kicking this off, talking about it, has really got you to start reading your Bible again. I think that's a good thing. So I'm not here to beat up on people that don't read the Bible yet. I would encourage you, if you don't have one, get one. You can get it on your phone. You can get it on your iPad. You can listen to it in your car. You can buy an actual book with pages, with words on them that you have to turn. Either way, the first Bible reading goal that we shared last week was to be the type of reader on whom nothing is lost. It's a good principle. Be the type of reader on whom nothing is lost. That means there's no timetable here. Don't set a goal to read a certain number of chapters or a certain number of books I would just encourage you to set a goal to understand what it is that you're reading. So some things you've got to read a couple of times. That's okay. Don't be in a rush. I have a Bible study every Wednesday morning at my mom and dad's house, and it takes us six months to get through the shortest books. And they laugh because at first they're like, what's next? And I'm like, well, we've been in Philippians 4 for the last six weeks, so I don't really know. But there's no rush. We, we really enjoy it, don't we, guys? getting some thumbs up or I'm long-winded I don't know which one that is you don't have to be an expert to understand the Bible but you can become one you can become a Bible expert anybody can right and so what I wanted to share with you this morning is in order for you to kind of get how the Bible works because when you when you look at this this book If you understand how it's arranged, how it's designed, and what its intentions is, then it kind of takes some of the intimidation factor away. I think one of the problems that a lot of people have in the Bible is they treat it like it's one book. I've got to read it from cover to cover, okay? It's not really how it works. Here's a good principle to live by. It's the next principle for you. The Bible is a library, not a book. Treat it like a library, you ever walked into, anybody go to libraries anymore? Are we allowed into libraries anymore? I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure what the protocols are these days. But it's set up like a library. Like you go into a library, you've got a reference section. You've got a, a uh, nonfiction section. You've got a fiction section. There's no fiction section of the Bible, in case you're wondering. You've got a young adult section. You've got all these different types of sections within the library. Do you know they got DVDs at the library? They're so excited. Okay, a DVD is this thing you used to put into a machine that actually had a movie on it, and then, okay, anyway. So there's all kinds of things. If you treat the Bible like a library, you'll understand you may be in one section of the library that sounds and reads very different to another section of the library, and you've got to understand which section of the library you're in 
to realize that an encyclopedia is going to read very differently to a novel, okay? This will help you, trust me. So we, we call the Bible the Holy Bible. Like if you look on your Bible, most of them say the Holy Bible. That word holy, it means set apart, set apart. So God's intention for the Bible is that it's holy, meaning it's set apart from every other book. It's not like other books. Often, if you've taken any kind of a freshman seminar class or something like that in college, they'll compare all these books of antiquity with Socrates and Aristotle, and they'll throw the Bible in there, and they'll try to compare them back and forth. Look, the Bible is set apart. It's not like those other books. You could say, well, they're all written by man, right? We could do a whole week on the origins of the Bible. But the Bible is both divine and it's human. And I think there's always these schools of thoughts that say, well, it's fully divine, that somehow mankind got possessed by the Holy Spirit, went into a trance and chiseled, I don't know what they did, scribed, depends on whether it's Old or New Testament, you know, and they're, they're writing it all and then woke up from a trance like, oh my gosh, what, how did I do that, you know, fully divine, or it's fully human. Oh, it's written by humans, so what good does it have for us today? Well, it's, it's actually both. The Bible calls itself inspired by or God-breathed by the Holy Spirit. We'll get into that a little bit later. But because it's both divine and human, in other words, God used humans to write the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is an amazing concept. It means that it's both fully human and fully divine. God used people's creativity, their writing style, their backgrounds, the way they thought, He inspired them, but yet used all of those things to create what we have as our Bible. So yes, it is infallible, but God used fallible humans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to create something that was infallible. How cool is that? Well, I don't understand how that works. Well, if we pray for somebody to get healed, I'm fallible. I may not have the right words. I may not do it the right way. And yet the person gets healed. The healing is infallible, even though I am a fallible vessel administering that healing. God chooses to work his Holy Spirit through mankind to accomplish his purposes on the earth. Does that make sense to anybody? So the healing is perfect. It's divine, but yet the vessel is human. The Bible is full of so many examples of God demonstrating the Holy Spirit and our experience of the Holy Spirit is through humans. Now, there's some things that God did with the Holy Spirit that was fully divine, right? But most often when we see the Holy Spirit exhibited or when we see the Holy Spirit on display, it's through a human being. It's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God inspired David to write a lot of the Psalms and and the things that he did. All of the book of Judges with Samson and those things, the Holy Spirit came on them. So we see the Holy Spirit demonstrated through a person. Even the day of Pentecost, Though there were tons of flames that came down, that was just the 120 that were in the room. The demonstration of the Holy Spirit was people speaking in an unknown tongue, declaring the glories of God. So when God chooses to demonstrate the Holy Spirit, He does it through human beings. There's a partnership of the divine with humankind to see His purposes established on the earth. So to understand the Bible in this way is not a new concept or an isolated concept that God only did that with the Bible. He does it all the time. 
I, I think it's incredible. In fact, the healing thing, I hope you catch that, that when I pray for somebody and they get healed, it's the divine infallible thing happening through the fallible person. In fact, it's so divine that sometimes I've prayed for somebody's shoulder and God healed their foot. That to me is like, I'm praying for their shoulder because sometimes people come up in a prayer line, you know, or, or the, maybe the other way around. I've prayed for the foot and God healed their shoulder and they're limping. So I just assume it's their foot and I'm praying for their foot and they don't tell me it was actually my shoulder I wanted prayer for and God heals the shoulder anyway. I love that sometimes even in our humanness, God's like, I know what you meant. I'm going to heal their shoulder. You know what I mean? I think it's pretty cool that God does that. But that's how God inspires the Bible. That's how God uses humans to create something that is infallible. But it's set apart. Because it is divine, it's set apart from other books. Now, why do I say it's important that you understand it's a library and not a book? Because you've got to understand how these books actually relate to each other. It's different depending on where it came from. Okay? The word Bible actually comes from the Greek word biblia. That's where we get the word Bible from. And biblia is plural. It means books. So the word Bible is plural. Biblia means books. So if you were to see that in English, you'd go, I have my books, not I have my Bible that is a book. Okay? So the Bible is made up of 66 books. Not 666, because that would be weird. It's made up of 66 books. It's written in three different languages. That's important. I'm not saying you have to learn Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, the three languages the Bible's written in, but it's important to understand that you're talking about three different languages. So some things that were written in Hebrew translate different than something that was written in Greek or in Aramaic. It was written under a 50 or over a 1,500-year span. 1,500 years. Would you read something from 1,500 years ago the same way that you would read something that was read, written yesterday? No, of course you wouldn't. Because the world 1,500 years ago looked very different to the world we live in today. Okay? It was written by and to different people. We'll talk about that in a minute. In other words, all different kinds of people contributed to the writing of it and were the original recipients of those books. And it was written in and to different cultures. Very important. Like a library, there's a poetry section, there's a history section. Oh, I didn't realize I gave her all these notes. How great is that? There's a poetry section, there's a history section, there's an action section. Do you know there's an action book in the Bible? Guess what it's called? Acts! I love it! It's the diehard of all Bible books. All right, there's a prophetic section. There's an eschatology. There's a big word. There's an end time section, the book of Revelation. There's all these different sections. So for you to understand the book that you're reading, you got to know which section you're actually in. So if we were trying to describe an event, and I had a biographer, like an historian, and I had a poet that were writing about the same thing. How many of you know the poet would sound very different to the historical writer? And if I'm trying to read poetry as if it's history, I'm going to get some things wrong. Because poets use poetic license. They talk about things and images and, and, and ways of describing things that evoke emotion 
but are not necessarily meant to be taken literally. Yet a historian is recording the actual events that really did happen. Okay? Jesus is a great example of this even. Jesus, there's narrative of Jesus' life. The narrative meaning this is what Jesus did, this is where he went. But then Jesus would speak in parables. And parables aren't always meant to be taken literally because it's a parable. It's a story about something. But we need to grasp the way that we take that parable and interpret it in our own culture today. But poets talk differently. A lawyer is going to talk differently than an action film does. If you're reading a legal brief, it's different to reading the script to Die Hard. Why am I on Die Hard right now? I'm stuck on that. I don't know. Just got stuck in my brain. But the script for an action movie will read very differently to a legal brief. So you got to understand how those things work together. Now, talking about the law section, here's something that's important to understand about law. Laws 1,500 years ago don't always apply to right now. Do you know that in our Constitution, there's several amendments to our Constitution? That because it, it means that some things that applied a long time ago no longer apply today. And you need to understand that many of the laws written in the Bible simply don't apply to us today. Some do, some don't. <laughs> Most people that have hang-ups about the Bible, it all centers around pretty much one book. Anybody want to guess what that book is? I already mentioned it. You got it. Leviticus. Once you get into Leviticus, you see some rules like, wait a minute, we can't eat pork or shrimp? Isn't that like a low country boil? They have both of those things in it, sausage and shrimp together. Like, why is all the good stuff out of the world? Why could they say you're not allowed to eat broccoli? You're not allowed to eat cauliflower. Who? Oh. oh. My wife has tried to make cauliflower good, and it's about as good as it gets, but you just can't make cauliflower good. I wish it was outlawed. It's not. Here's how you interpret some of those laws, okay? This is the principle I want you to understand. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. Do you hear that? It's written for us, but not to us. You need to understand who that book was written to. There's a difference between somebody writing to you and somebody writing for you. That means some of the laws that were written were written because of situations that the people who received that book were existing in at that time. So Bible reading goal number two is that our job as readers is to place ourselves in the time and the culture of the original audience. In other words, we don't read Leviticus and go, no shrimp, no pork. You have to put yourself in the time and the culture of the original recipients of that book. Or even Paul's letters. You read Corinthians, you're like, man, women can't talk in church. You got to cover their heads. Why does Romy get up and preach? I don't understand. It's very clear in scripture. Well, you got to know that those were things that were instructions given to a specific church dealing with a specific issue at a specific time in a specific place. But yet there's other instructions in scripture that transcend time. So how do you know which is which? We'll talk about that in a minute. But if you know that the Bible was written for us and not to us, you'll understand that some of these instructions that God gave to certain people are not direct instructions 
for us. So why does the Bible tell us then we can't eat pork, can't eat shrimp? Do you remember some of those, you've heard about these, some of the laws that are on the books in certain states that make no sense whatsoever? Like in Kentucky, it's illegal to carry an ice cream cone in your back pocket. That's a real law. You ever heard that? Like, there's got to be a story behind this. You know what I mean? Like, you hear these things, and uh, there was another state I read where it was illegal for a donkey to sleep in a bathtub. Okay. I think I'm good on that one, right? The ice cream, I don't know. I've had kids. You never know where they're going to put an ice cream. But the donkey one... As you get and to read those stories, it's because there was a, a ranch hand centuries ago who had a donkey that used to sleep in this abandoned bathtub. Why he did it, who knows? But there was a dam that broke, and the dam swept away the donkey in the bathtub into a ravine, and it took so much time and effort to get this donkey out. They're like, look, that's it. we got to make a law. This is never happening again, right? <laughs> but man, 100 years later, and you're like, what? in the world is this law. You know the ice cream cone? That's probably the most common one I've heard. I actually found out what the story was behind that. You see, we have cars now, right? But how did people travel before there were cars? They traveled on horseback. And so if you wanted to steal a horse, it was really easy. Horses will follow sweet things. So they just put an ice cream cone in the back of their pocket, walk next to the horse, horse would notice, and they'd walk away and the horse would come home with them. That's how they would steal horses. The law was an intent not to have people steal horses. Doesn't say it in the law. It just says, you can't carry an ice cream cone in your back pocket. I'm like, why would I carry an ice cream cone? It makes sense to five-year-old me. It doesn't make sense to 50-year-old me. It's ridiculous, right? So if you were to read that law and go, hey, law says, can't. You better not have an ice cream cone in your back pocket. You're breaking the law. It's the same way that we approach some of these food laws. You better not eat pork. You better not eat shrimp. Because the Bible tells us in Leviticus that those things are unclean. And we should not do that because the Bible says not to do that. Well, the ice cream cone law doesn't apply because we don't roll around on horses anymore. Some of you homesteaders and future homesteaders, maybe you will. We raise chickens, but we don't go around on horses in this church. It doesn't apply. And so there's no reason to have the law anymore, right? Even though these laws are probably still on the books. I guess because it's more trouble to get rid of it than it is to just keep it on the books and not actually do it. But the Old Testament food laws, that's a great example of that, right? So all these things about you can't eat chicken, or can't eat chicken. (laughs) But you can't eat cauliflower. I wish in Jesus' name. Can't eat shrimp, can't eat pork, all the good stuff. Do they apply today? Listen, I know a lot of people that still keep trying to apply food laws to their diet. Now, if you choose not to eat it for health reasons, that's all well and good. Send it to my house. Um, But Mark chapter 7, Jesus actually dealt with this directly. In Mark chapter 7, verse 18 and 19, he said, Don't you see nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart but into their stomach and then out the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Here's a great example, except cauliflower, Rumi said. If you're trying to figure out whether an Old Testament law still applies to us today, 
Look what Jesus says. How Jesus applied that and how the apostles applied to that determines whether we still follow it today. Now, there's some Old Testament laws that simply don't apply. There's some that still do, and some, this will shock you, even changed. It's important to understand both the Old and the New Testament to know how and what we apply today. Very important. So listen to me. Old Testament food laws don't apply today. If you have a personal conviction not to eat pork, go for it. If you have a personal conviction to follow certain food laws, no one's going to tell you you shouldn't do that. But don't put those on to other people. And understand, this is not me saying this. Jesus said none of those things matter anymore. And you can get so carried away because you miss that food laws were written to God's people at a certain time. They had just come out of slavery to Egypt. They're going into a new land that is surrounded by pagan cultures. And in these pagan cultures, they would have food that was sacrificed to idols. They would have certain things that were a part of their daily life. There were actually worship of demons that were a part of their daily life. And remember, they're holy. They're meant to be set apart. So God gave them very strict rules as they moved into this new place to make sure they understood you are not to be like them in any way whatsoever. Don't follow their customs. Don't follow their practices. I want to establish you as a holy nation and a royal priesthood. So I want you to get rid of everything that is not what I've called you to do. It was written for them for that specific purpose in that specific time. Does that make sense? Have I offended anybody that doesn't want to eat pork? I'm sorry, Jesus said it, not me. Here's another touchy subject. What about homosexuality? What does the Bible teach us about this? Well, I know a lot of legalistic Christians are like Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man has sexual relations with a man, as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. So does the Old Testament condemn homosexuality? You bet. At the penalty of death, that's a pretty harsh reality. Why? Because God, again, wanted them to be set apart and holy. He did not want them to participate in the cultures that existed around them. They were meant to be separate. So how does the New Testament treat homosexuality? Have a look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in verse 9. Or do you not know that all wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wait, who's not going to inherit the kingdom of God? Which ones? Just people that participate in homosexuality? All. All. Okay? So, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor slanderers, swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So what happens in the New Testament? Is homosexuality still considered a sin? Yes, but he's expanded it to include the sexually immoral. Let's forget about talking about even all the other stuff, but idolatry, uh, adultery, sexual immorality, 
It's not just about homosexuality. He's saying any sexual immorality now fits into that same thing. In other words, you can't just sleep with who you want to sleep with. It's not good enough just to be in love with the person to have sex. It's reserved for marriage. God actually increased the standard. Whereas before, it was just don't have sex with somebody that's of the same gender. Now he includes it into all of sexual immorality. So the idea of setting apart is still there, but it's actually increased in the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? Some things, the standard gets even bigger. But for us to correctly interpret that Old Testament law in a New Testament context, which is the challenge we have when we read Scripture, how do we interpret Leviticus today? Do we just go, and this is what most people do, it doesn't sound right, or it doesn't fit with today's culture. That's not the standard. I know a pastor who's been teaching his congregation that because we don't live in a world where homosexuality is wrong anymore, we're going to treat it the same way. He said there's plenty of other stuff in the Bible that we don't really follow anymore. Let's just add that to the list. Like the Bible says, uh, wives submit to your husbands. Well, obviously we don't ask wives to do that anymore, so we may as well include this in the list as well. I was like, Wow, so you get to pick and choose what things in Scripture you want to follow based on popular culture. Do you see where that's a dangerous road to live in? By the way, the submission thing, the, the submission thing, the Bible says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So if you think that the Bible is just male chauvinistic, it's not. It actually says for us to submit to one another as we submit to Christ, Okay. But it's important that we don't just throw things out or include things that we want to include just because it fits with popular culture. What does Jesus have to say about it? What does the rest of the Bible have to say about it? Now, what's the difference between these two scriptures, between Leviticus and the Corinthians verse that I read? One, it increased it. So it's not just homosexuality. It's now all sexual immorality. Okay that includes adultery, includes sex before marriage, includes, as I, here's my standard, actually it's not my standard, I heard it from somewhere else, I thought it's so great, you're not allowed to touch or look at something you don't have. I think that's the best standard ever. You're not allowed to touch or look at what you don't have. That's sexual immorality, or sexual morality, I guess is the best way to put that. So, how does it change in the New Testament? What was the penalty for somebody that committed homosexuality in Leviticus? Remember? Death. Look at Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. You see, in the Old Testament, you killed the person that committed the sin. In the New Testament, you kill the earthly nature that breeds the behavior. So we don't kill homosexuals. We don't kill the sexually moral. We kill the nature in us that leads to the sinful behavior. That's called grace. That's called repentance. So we don't beat up on homosexuals, but we don't condone the sin either because the Bible doesn't condone the sin. We don't beat up on people that have had sex before marriage because the Bible doesn't, but we teach people to repent so that the death of the old self can happen in us. 
It's the death of the nature, not the death of the person. How many of you glad that's good news? That the moment I'm sin, I sin, God doesn't throw a thunderbolt down towards me. But I can get a word that says, hey, today is the day of repentance. And I'm not like, oh, here it comes. But I'm like, no, God, here it comes. I'm putting it at the altar because all it's doing is hindering me. So if I don't die to my sinful nature, then I'll reap the fruit of that sinful nature. But if I can learn to die to it, I receive his grace and his forgiveness because Jesus has already died for us. He's already paid the penalty of our sin. So homosexuality got put on his body. Sexual sin got put on his body. Greed, idolatry, all got put on his body. So when I confess my sin, I already receive and appropriate the forgiveness that he is pouring out on me daily. But if I don't repent of those things, it's like I'm blocking his forgiveness from entering my heart. What a foolish way to live. I'd rather hold on to my sin and block your forgiveness than let go of my sin and receive your love. Why would you refuse his love? Why would you not want it? Why would you not sell everything you have to experience his love? You can't buy it. You can't find it. It's free. And all it takes is for you to let go. I just let go. He doesn't kill the sinner. He killed the sin. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you so much. He took all of that past sexual sin on his own body. All of it. So you don't have to live in shame. You don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend. You can confess it and receive his love and his forgiveness and be clean and be whole. Whether your sin led to an abortion, whether your sin just led to multiple partners and now you've got all these soul ties connected inside of you and bound up and possibly demonized as a result, you're like, I don't know what to do. Can I tell you, you're in the right place. And it just begins with saying, God, I confess and I repent and I can be free. He doesn't kill the sinner. He kills the sin. Well, we're already there. How about tithing? Let's talk about tithing since we're there anyway. Does the Old Testament talk about tithing? Well, let's go back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 27, verse 30. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. What is a tithe? It's the first 10% of everything that we earn. It belongs to God. Was that pre or post tax? Well, what do you think? Well, I give to the IRS first, then I give to God. A tithe of everything we earn belongs to God. We bring it through the local church. We bring it to God and honor him with with that, right? But that's Leviticus. How do we interpret that today? Well, Matthew chapter 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. I can see them. Oh, here it comes. We don't have to tithe anymore, right? But you have neglected the more important laws of the matter, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Ooh, so here's Jesus again. So the tithe is still valid in a New Testament context, but not at the expense of the more important things 
of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So Jesus says, yes, you should still tithe, but let's get some perspective here. Because if you think you can tithe and treat people like garbage, you're missing the point. You can't buy favor. You can't buy forgiveness. And you can be a jerk and still tithe. Tithing doesn't make you a non-jerk. Is that a word? So that doesn't mean, well, I don't have to tithe anymore. And as long as I'm friendly, I'm good. No, he says you need to do both. You need to do both. So sometimes Jesus takes the same principle and affirms it, but puts a new perspective. You see, a common thing for the Pharisees in the New Testament, I'm getting off track, but that's okay, this will help, is, you know, in the period between the end of the Old Testament and the arrival of the New Testament with John the Baptist, there's a 400-year gap where God did not speak through the prophets, did not speak to people because of their disobedience. And so what do people do in the lack of being able to hear God? They add their own rules. So there were over 600 more laws in addition to the book of Leviticus that were added between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the list was so long of the daily stuff that they had to do that wasn't in the Bible. It was tradition, but it wasn't in the Bible. And there were so many things that they had to follow that here was the philosophy that most people went by, including the Pharisees. It's not how much can we do to honor God. It's what is the bare minimum we can get away with and still be okay with God. So that was a common question. Remember the question, how many times should I forgive my brother? The question is, what's the bare minimum I can do to get away with it? And you got to be honest, if you put yourself in the time and culture of the day, <laughs> you couldn't do the bare minimum. And so it's like, the question is almost like, well, what's the, what's the minimum I can do? Is 9% okay? Is, what about 8%? It, it's a common because of all these laws of mankind. And that's what happens when we add legalism into what God said, is you start to live with a bare minimum mentality. When it comes to giving, some people have this bare minimum thing. What's the minimum I can do? Just pay my bills, see what's left over, and then add to it. And Jesus goes, no, you, you should still be tithing, but don't neglect the weightier matters of the law. It's both. You don't get to pick and choose. Fair enough? Okay. So, and there's a history section. Oh, I love, the, I love history. It's one of my favorite things. But when we're reading the history section of the Bible, you've got to remember that there's different genres and times in history, and they affect how we read the Bible today. What time is it? Oh, oh my goodness. We'll pick this up next week. It's weird. My iPad gets blurrier every week. I need to talk to Apple about this. It's like, how far can you expand out? <laughs> Healed in Jesus' name. Don't come put mud on my eyes. All right. So we already talked about the Bible reading goals. Our goal as readers is to place ourselves in the time and culture of the original audience. And probably a great example of this, when God gave Moses the law on top of Mount Sinai, which then became the book of Leviticus and the Ten Commandments and all that. You know, you read through the book of Leviticus now and you're like, oh my gosh, so many rules and regulations. Can't we all just be free? Well, we're living and reading that from the perspective we live in now. And you can easily read the book of Leviticus and go, what a burden. 
That is not the way the original recipients received the law. They went, thank you. We have not known how to live. Like we got this guy that's a pillar of fire and a cloud and he like killed all these people and destroyed Pharaoh. We're scared to death and we just need to know how to live. We really don't know how, we don't know how to approach God. And so the giving of the law was not a restriction. It was an instruction. It was finally, we now know how to live. They received the law with such joy and such appreciation that now finally we know how to live in a way that we can relate to God. And so the whole Old Testament, the whole law that was given was an agreement that God made with his people, Israel. And we need to read it that way. And it was all about how he relates to them and how they are to relate to him. So I hope that helps. We'll continue this on maybe next week. We'll see. I don't know who's preaching next week. But as we move into this a little bit more, I want to, I really felt that that was the thing we were supposed to talk about this morning was how do we interpret some of the difficult things in the Old Testament in the context of living in a New Testament church? We're not to just discard the old. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. We'll talk about that next week and what exactly that means. But I hope and pray for you as you endeavor to step out and read your Bible a little bit more this week that you keep some of these principles in mind. I'm not saying you all have to go read the book of Leviticus, um, but just get started somewhere, and it's, it's, it's going to really help you. So we're going to get into some more principles uh, over the next week, maybe the next two weeks. We'll see how long this takes. But there's no rush. There's no rush, Clayton. There's no rush. There's no rush. So, Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that you have given us a divinely inspired, a book that is both divine and human in its origin. I thank you that you work through us, whether it's praying for healing, leading somebody in a prayer of salvation, God, seeing somebody get filled with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that you can do all those things just out of your, your, your divinity and, Lord, out of, out of your uh, uh, omnipotence, but you choose to work through us. And I thank you, God. I don't consider myself worthy of the privilege of being used by you. I, I don't know why you picked me, but you do. I don't know why you pick any of us, but you do. I thank you for it, that you want to partner with us to see your purposes and plans happen on this earth. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill every person in this room, inspiring their reading, guiding them and directing them into all truth this week as we dig into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.